0: Hello and welcome to the third episode of our new Policy Matters series, this time on the topic of whether a UK-EU trade war is now inevitable. With Brussels and Number 10 Downing Street at loggerheads, our podcast assesses the prospects for what, at worst, but realistically, could in effect be a no-deal situation at the back end of 2022. I'm Paul Butcher, Director of Public Policy at Herbert Smith Freehills, and until a few months ago, Brexit director. I'm delighted to be joined today by Eric White, a consultant in our Brussels office, who we and our clients have been extremely lucky to help us navigate the Brexit process, amongst many other things. Eric rejoined our firm shortly after the Brexit referendum, following over three decades at the EU Commission's legal service, where, amongst other things, he headed up their trade policy and WTO team. Thanks for sharing your thoughts today, Eric.
1: I'm delighted and thank you for having me on your podcast.
0: Great. Thanks, Eric. So the topic today on one level might seem to be a niche issue. Most listeners won't have significant trade between either Great Britain and Northern Ireland and or between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. But there are possible escalations that are conceivable and indeed actively talked about, which could lead, within a matter of weeks to the EU giving a notice to terminate the entire EU-UK trade cooperation agreement on 12 months' notice, or just the trade bit on nine months' notice. And of course, the word just there is somewhat of an understatement. So in this podcast, we'll cover what the disagreement is between the EU and the UK currently, what the UK is threatening to do if its demands aren't met, and what the EU might do in response and how that might in turn put us back into what might be termed a Groundhog Day no deal scenario before uh, the end of this year coming. Eric, before we get into the current dispute, could you set the scene briefly with what the Northern Ireland Protocol actually is and how it fits with the other EU-UK agreements relating to Brexit and why back in March 2018 Long before it was finalised and signed, you pointed out that it was arguably illegal under EU law.
1: Thank you, Paul. Yes, that blog post on the illegality of the Northern Ireland Protocol did cause something of a stir. But in the end, no one wanted to go down that path. The Northern Ireland Protocol, everyone might remember, was negotiated under difficult circumstances. Lord Frost has recently said that it was negotiated under duress. But you remember the cliff edge of a no-deal Brexit was looming and three incompatible objectives needed to be reconciled. And these were, first, that there should be no border between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland. Secondly, that the integrity of the EU single market should be protected. And thirdly, there should be no border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. The obvious solution to those three incompatible requirements was to keep the UK de facto in the single market. And that was in fact what Mrs May proposed back in 2018-19, but which was roundly rejected. Another solution would have been to move checks on goods passing from Northern Ireland into the rest of Ireland, away from the Irish border to the place of dispatch, and also to have a high degree of cooperation enforcement between the two sides. While the negotiations were deadlocked, uh, Herbert Smith Freehills actually helped a think tank called Prosperity UK to develop a blueprint. In fact, it was written as an alternative protocol along these lines and and which was published in a big, thick volume. And the Prime Minister apparently presented it to the EU, but it was rejected as not providing a sufficiently gold-plated assurance of single market integrity. The EU finally had the whip hand in the negotiations and the outcome was a text that kept Northern Ireland in the single market with EU customs law applying but which states inconsistently that Northern Ireland is part of the UK customs territory and that the UK internal market should be protected with unfettered access across the Irish Sea. There were improvements and the main improvements compared to Mrs May's protocol was that the rest of the UK was free to diverge from EU rules and that the part of the protocol that kept Northern Ireland in the single market could be terminated following a complex procedure if it no longer had the consent of the people of Northern Ireland.
0: Thanks Eric. So this this has been um, going on for a while these, these issues. Um, In a nutshell, what's the current argument about?
1: Well, they say that the proof of a pudding is in the eating, and the proof of this protocol has been in its attempted implementation. It is only recently that most people have started to realise what it means. And, you know, for example, products imported into Northern Ireland that are at risk of passing into the EU need to comply with EU rules. And the EU has, through clever drafting in the protocol, ensured that this means that it must be proven that they cannot move, or there's no risk of them moving into the EU. This is rarely the case. So imagine a lorry load of goods destined for a Northern Ireland supermarket. This test applies in principle to each product. And as we've all heard, consumers care when their favourite sausages are no longer available. The protocol is therefore already causing problems, even though the UK has delayed implementing many controls by unilaterally extending the grace period for for, which was included for some controls that the EU had originally accorded. There are other irritants that are already visible that I will mention, and in particular. Um, something that disturbs lots of people, is when they take their pets out of Northern Ireland into the UK, they're subject to EU quarantine rules when returning. And then also um, another irritant is that some medicines, which are authorised in the UK, are no longer authorised under EU legislation, which applies in Northern Ireland, and so are not available to the NHS in Northern Ireland, which therefore needs to use more expensive alternatives. This has led the UK to argue that the Northern Ireland Protocol is unsustainable in its present form and so ask the EU to first of all reduce the number of checks for goods moving from Great Britain into Northern Ireland and secondly reduce the requirements for those goods to comply with EU standards and rules. To this the UK government adds a further demand of a rather different nature and that is to remove or to water down at least the role of the European Court of Justice in the governance mechanism of the protocol. This is a highly emotive subject for some and it is indeed quite unprecedented for a government to agree that its compliance with obligations under an agreement should be decided by the courts of the other party. Not even the European Economic Area countries, which are in this EU single market, have done that. The UK, however, did agree to it.
0: Thanks, Eric. There's a lot of uh, emotive stuff uh, caught up in all of this. Um, from the reports, it seems that EU have moved quite a lot already on the first of those issues, um, which is the, reducing the number of checks for goods and moving from Great Britain to Northern Ireland and moved on the second to some extent, um, in other words the, the reducing requirements for those goods to comply with EU standards. But on the third issue you mentioned relating to the um, European Court of Justice, the EU's um, had much less appetite to engage. So if the UK doesn't get what it wants, and negotiations are ongoing now, um, what's the legal weapon that they've been talking about In other words, could you tell us about Article 16, please?
1: Yes, certainly. I wrote about this recently in the View from Brussels, uh, one of the View from Brussels blog posts, which is on our website. So the protocol, like many international agreements, contains what is termed a safeguard clause and that allows a party to depart from its obligations, where, and I quote from the protocol in this case, the application of this protocol leads to serious economic, societal or environmental difficulties that are liable to persist or to a diversion of trade. End of quote. The UK considers that unrest and a threat, threat of more unrest in Northern Ireland, therefore justifies the application of this clause. The EU has fiercely opposed the threat of invoking Article 16 and threatens a trade war and indeed even the termination of the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. Despite this bluster from the EU, the UK threat of invoking Article 16 in principle can be justified in legal terms. So let me explain what safeguard clauses are. The reason why safeguard clauses are included in international agreements is to facilitate their conclusion by providing reassurance that there is a get out in the event of adverse developments. Scaremongers opposing ratification of an agreement can be disarmed by pointing to the possibility of invoking a safeguard clause in case of difficulty. There's an understanding amongst negotiators of international agreements that these clauses are safety valves to be used in emergencies and in response to unforeseen developments not as a means of avoiding the clear implications of obligations consciously undertaken. Article 19 of the GATT, for example, quite a famous safeguard clause, expressly conditions trade safeguard action on the presence of unforeseen developments and describes such measures as emergency action. International agreements do not allow safeguard action to be taken without cost. They typically allow the other party under certain conditions to suspend equivalent obligations under the agreement in order to rebalance the respective rights and obligations under the agreement. Article 16 of the protocol is based on this model, but is exceptionally liberal in that it is not conditioned on the existence of unforeseen developments or even an emergency. The economic or societal or environmental difficulties must merely be serious and be liable to persist. Article 16 seems to have been drafted by the EU to be easy to invoke because it was concerned about diversion of trade. Diversion of trade is also mentioned in Article 16 and it does not even have to be serious or liable to persist in order to justify safeguard action. And the EU itself did invoke the safeguard clause earlier this year so as to restrict exports of COVID vaccines to Northern Ireland but it quickly backtracked when it realised the precedent that it was
0: setting. Thanks, Eric. So in terms of an EU response, what are their options?
1: Well, as I have mentioned, the EU would be entitled to respond to the UK safeguard measures by taking so-called rebalancing measures. Again, however, there are some important conditions to be fulfilled. First, The safeguard measure would have to create an imbalance between the rights and obligations under the protocol. That may seem obvious if the UK suspends some of its obligations, but it's not inconceivable that it could design a balanced safeguard measure that can be argued not to create an imbalance. Secondly, the rebalancing measure has to be proportionate and strictly necessary to remedy the imbalance with priority being given, again, to measures that least disturb the functioning of the protocol. This condition would seem a major constraint on rebalancing measures that the EU could take. And this is because the protocol mostly contains obligations on the UK. And it's difficult to see realistically how the EU could suspend its obligation to avoid, for example, customs controls on the border between Ireland and Northern Ireland, especially since that's the whole purpose of the protocol and a suspension would disturb the functioning more than anything else one could imagine.
0: Thanks Eric. So um, politically a key problem for the EU of the kind of rebalancing that you've been talking about there and, and other specific forms of retaliation would also be having to get agreement across member states for what would be complex proposals, which could be difficult. And that's one of the reasons why, in many ways, the more extreme steps, such as terminating the EU-UK trade deal, are being talked of on the EU side. Could you tell us about those?
1: Yes, certainly, because so far we've discussed the law, the legal mechanisms in the agreement. However, this is an intensely political subject, and we need to consider how this works politically as well. On the one hand, the EU wants to deter the UK from invoking Article 16 and apparently it doesn't consider that the simple cost to the UK of rebalancing measures by the EU in accordance with the safeguard provision uh, will be enough of a threat. It therefore speaks of a trade war and the suspension and even termination of the trade and cooperation agreement. The trade and cooperation agreement is, we must remember, a separate agreement And so retaliation under the trade and cooperation agreement is not a legitimate rebalancing measure because the safeguard measure talks about rebalancing on rebalancing speaks about suspending obligations under the protocol. It is only if the EU can demonstrate that the UK has violated the protocol, for example, by improperly applying a safeguard measure that the EU could then legally retaliate under the trade and cooperation agreement which contains a cross retaliation provision for the withdrawal agreement that however requires it to go through dispute settlement to establish the violations it's not enough that the eu just considers there to be a violation it has to demonstrate it to an arbitration panel and that would take some time i've heard it said that the eu could terminate the trade and cooperation agreement by invoking a violation of the rule of law principle. This is the principle that has been included in EU agreements since its experience with Yugoslavia, to allow immediate termination of an agreement in the case of a fundamental breach, such as a violation of human rights. However, invoking a right under an agreement, like the right to impose a safeguard measure, and following the appropriate procedure is not a breach of the rule of law. On the contrary, it could more easily be argued that the unilateral action of the EU of terminating the agreement without following the agreed dispute settlement procedure would be a violation of the rule of law. But what the EU could threaten is simply to invoke the agreed termination provisions in the TCA and there are many of those. For example, the whole agreement can be terminated on 12 months notice, and the trade chapter can be terminated on nine months notice. Those are agreed options for the parties under the trade and cooperation agreement. They can be followed without conditions. There are no condition except notice being given. That is however very much a nuclear option because the trade and cooperation agreement serves the interests of both parties and very many companies and people rely on it. It's much more likely that such a so-called termination would in reality be the start of the new negotiation for a new agreement with perhaps a 12-month deadline.
0: Thanks, Eric. So it's quite possible that in 9 or 12 months, from perhaps as early as this January, we could once again be facing last minute negotiations, as you say, it's more likely to you know, lead to a period of negotiation which, if the usual uh, format is followed, uh, would be going up to the wire with business facing a potential no deal between the EU and UK at the end of the year. Many business people listening to this might be horrified thinking, hang on a minute, has everyone gone completely mad? And to some extent, from both sides, the high stakes they're prepared to play does have an element of the madman strategy about it. In other words, with each side trying to convince the other that they're very serious about the, the kind of nuclear option, as it were, from, from each side's perspective that you're referencing. But for the UK government, uh, in a way, whatever the horror for business, that uh, they may feel of this kind of Groundhog Day repeat of a potential No Deal, a termination notification by the EU might be um, just what they're they're hoping for. Although that does sound sounds a strange thing to say, but that's the the argument um, that fits in with that is that it allows an extended period in which, due to those Article 16 safeguard measures that you've referred to the UK um, w- will have um, led to a position where, amongst other things, there essentially won't be a border between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and also no new border in, rea- in reality between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland either. And that enables the facts on the ground to change, as the UK can say to the EU, look, actually, the single EU single market has not been harmed even in this extreme scenario. And so the EU's concerns on that are exaggerated in practice. So surely we can just get back round the table in these negotiations, and we can come up with a pragmatic solution that everyone can be happy with. And of course, with the Northern Ireland elections happening in May, there's a lot of focus um, for the UK government on trying to de-escalate the tensions there and in that regard the EU faces pressures too. Um, At the moment um, the EU are facing the UK government triggering Article 16 but as you pointed out Eric in your recent view from Brussels, after two years the people of Northern Ireland have a democratic consent mechanism built into the protocol which could effectively lead to the similar impact to Article 16 except If they did it that way round, then it would be the people of Northern Ireland that had triggered it rather than the UK, which would be much harder politically for the EU to deal with. Eric, could you touch on on that consent mechanism, please?
1: Yes, with pleasure. First, just let me say, uh, perhaps all the work we did for Prosperity UK to draft an alternative protocol won't be wasted after all, because... uh, Effectively, is what we uh, said was that uh, this border is not such a serious problem in the modern world. You can move the controls away from the border and just have lots yeah. of cooperation between the parties, and um, that you don't need um, to, to, to apply EU law in Northern Ireland against the will of the people. But uh, yeah, all right. The other mechanism, which might lead to the same result, actually, is a um, very important and uh, because this is the new part of the protocol that was negotiated and it, that's the, it, it means that those provisions in the protocol that keep northern ireland in the eu single market can be terminated if it no longer if they no longer have the consent of the people of northern ireland the procedure is complex because it involves participation of the various institutions in northern ireland and make sure that both communities in northern ireland have their their say in the outcome. But if discontent in Northern Ireland is is sufficiently serious, and those conditions of consultation and uh, decision-making are met, that part of the agreement that keeps Northern Ireland in the EU market will cease to apply. Uh, There's a two-year period of notice, so the the institutions in Northern Ireland comes to this decision and says, we don't want this anymore. And then um, the single market provisions will stop applying two years after that. And that, of course, provides an opportunity for another renegotiation- but this time with a two-year deadline. Um, and I think it's anticipating this logic- um, that, it, that the, it's because of this logic that the EU has put together a package of measures- recently to address the most serious irritants that have arisen under the protocol so it's, it's proposing to unilaterally reduce the customs and sanitary controls on goods entering from the uk uh, and also to um, to adopt new rules authorizing the use of uk medicines in northern ireland because in the end the protocol has no future if the people of northern ireland do not want it also for this reason the eu proposes to boost an institution or a committee, which is provided for in the protocol, called the Joint Consultative Working Group, and even proposes to develop yet more mechanisms so as to allow the people of Northern Ireland to have a say in the rules that will apply to them. Because you have to remember that all new EU rules concerning the internal market will automatically apply to Northern Ireland, even though Northern Ireland has got no say in voting for those measures, so there is an an effort to try and ensure that there is some consultation of the people of Northern Ireland um, in the adoption of these new laws. But the EU is clearly of the view that it's better to nip the discontent in Northern Ireland that is brewing in the bud rather than to let it fester and destroy the whole protocol in the end.
0: Thanks Eric, so I think in practice, of course, that means that we could end up with a negotiated agreement rather than some of these, you know, Article 16 being triggered. Although at the moment, um, I wouldn't be betting uh, either way, uh, but it looks like we'll be finding out in, in January. Lord Frost tweeted a couple of days ago that intense negotiations are continuing this week with the hope of making worthwhile progress towards agreed solutions before Christmas. But it does seem that we'll have to wait until January to see exactly how this plays out. Uh, many thanks for the discussion today, Eric. If Article 16 is indeed triggered, then I suspect we'll be back discussing this again fairly soon. But more generally, uh, listeners can subscribe to our Policy Matters blog via hsfnotes.com forward slash And also do subscribe to our Policy Matters podcast series. The first episode was on the global energy crisis and the second on the UK's version of that crisis. Thanks very much for listening. And thanks very much, Eric.
1: Thank you, Paul.